What, what a privilege and joy it is to be here, having done this before. Uh, who wouldn't want to come back to serve you to, and add my voice to your singing, uh, as well as the privilege and joy of preaching God's Word? My only challenge this morning was maintaining the speed limit in making my way here because of my excitement level. It's just true. <laughs> Not sure I did it either. Um, <laughs> I am a fan of your lead pastor. Uh, I think, in my experience, he, he's a rare combination of uh, humility, compassion, discernment, courage. He has a pronounced gift of leadership, and yet he graciously extends the gift of friendship. Now, if you tempted to think that's a paid political announcement. I don't do paid political announcements, but I do tell the truth, uh, and that's been my experience. So thank you, my friend, for this privilege, and thank you as well for making an exception for me, because I get to preach three different messages today, and I think it's much harder to preach the same message three times. I don't know how the man does it, uh, so thank you for making an exception for me this morning. Please turn in your Bible to the first letter of Peter, and the title of this message is Painful Yet Purposeful. And our attention this morning will be devoted to 1 Peter chapter 1, primarily verses 6 through 9, but it would be most appropriate for us to begin reading in verse 1 so that we are aware of and affected by what precedes verses 6 through 9. Now, I now have the privilege, and what a distinct privilege it is to read aloud to you the very words of God himself as he kindly addresses each of us this morning. First Peter Chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through Faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with 
glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy, Tolkien describes a scene where the young hobbit Pippin studies the face of the ancient wizard Gandalf. Tolkien writes, Pippin glanced in some wonder at the face now close beside his own. He saw at first only lines of care and sorrow, though as he looked more intently, he perceived that under all there was a great joy, a fountain of mirth enough to set a kingdom laughing were it to gush. Fourth, Tolkien insightfully and descriptively captured the depth and the breadth of emotions that characterize the wise old wizard. There were lines of sorrow, but under it all, there was a great joy. One wonders if Mr. Tolkien wasn't inspired by our passage this morning. For here in Holy Scripture, Peter provides the original readers with a striking and vivid description of the depth and breadth of emotions that are meant to characterize the maturing Christian. For in verse 6, Peter references being grieved by various trials. But did you notice, or you must have noticed, that this passage about trials is framed by the word rejoice in verses 6 and 8. So how is that possible? How, how is it possible to simultaneously grieve and rejoice? How is it possible to rejoice in the midst of the painful experience of trials? Well, Peter informs us that a Christian can and will do the unthinkable. We, we can. We can rejoice in our painful trials because we know something. Because we know something about the divine purpose for our trials. We can rejoice because we perceive the unseen hand of God working in and through our trials for our good and ultimately for his glory. Our outline this morning is a simple one. First, the painful reality of trials, verse 6. Second, the good purpose of trials, verse 7. And finally, the sweet assurance in trials, verses 8 and 9. We begin with the painful reality of trials in verse 6. Verse 6 begins with, with a most appropriate exhortation for the Christian to rejoice in light of what Peter has previously communicated. In this, he writes, you rejoice. Well, in what? Well, in the content of verses 3 through 5. So Peter, in verse 6, he's reaching back to the content of verses 3 through 5. He directs the original reader's attention away from their difficult circumstances to the gracious action of God in causing them to be born again to a living hope for an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. So God has not only graciously prepared this inheritance they do not deserve and we do not deserve, but he is keeping this inheritance. Look again at verse 4, kept in heaven for you, kept for you. If you are a Christian, kept for you, kept for you by name, kept for you by God himself. And not only is God himself keeping this inheritance for them, 
He is keeping them for this inheritance. And so we read in verse 5, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded. So God is keeping this inheritance in heaven for them and us by implication. And he is keeping them and us on earth and in this life for this future inheritance. There is an inheritance. There is an inheritance awaiting the Christian that, listen, is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and we are being kept by God himself in this life through the gift of faith for that inheritance. And all this has been secured and guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is one serious living hope. And in all this and because of all this, the only appropriate response is to rejoice. That's the only appropriate response. By the way, this, this is the explanation for why your singing each week has an, an unapologetic accent on rejoicing. Like if you're a guest this morning and you're wondering why is the joint jumping, this is why the joint is jumping this morning. And in just a few weeks, this joint's going to be jumping, if possible, even more as you celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ that has secured and guaranteed this inheritance Peter exhorts them and us to rejoice in. So the appropriate response in reflection on what God has promised and done in verses 3 through 5 is to rejoice. And then, then there is an abrupt change in both content and mood that takes place in verse 6. Peter transitions from exhorting them to celebrate to identifying with their grief. Verse 6, though now for a little while, you have been grieved by various trials. And here, here we are reminded, really, of the central motif in this letter. The original readers are suffering. That's the occasion for this letter. They are suffering for their faith because they are elect exiles, verse 1, in this World. The original readers were being maligned in the Greco-Roman culture because of their identification with Christ and Him crucified. They were being mistreated because of their proclamation of the gospel and their commitment to the ethical implications of the gospel. They were viewed as a threat to the culture and community because of the gospel. And that is increasingly becoming our experience as well. And they felt the effect of this. They felt the effect of this persecution for their faith. They felt it. They felt it in their own families. They felt it in their communities. They felt it in the workplace. Their suffering, listen, was painful. They are grieved. They are grieved by their trials. And they are a reminder to us that Christians suffer. Christians suffer for their faith. Listen, and when Christians suffer, Christians grieve because it's painful. When you become a Christian, you will suffer. You will suffer for your faith. You will suffer for your faith, listen, and it will hurt. You will grieve. Your, your relationship with God doesn't spare you from suffering. And your knowledge of God doesn't spare you, listen, doesn't spare you from feeling the pain of suffering. I'm assuming, given the size of the congregation assembled here this morning, that there are at least a few dentists among us. And if you are a dentist, 
Well, I'm very grateful for what you do. I am genuinely grateful for what you do. I don't prefer the dentist. I don't go to the dentist unless I absolutely have to. It's not uncommon for me to receive a call from the dentist informing me that the last time they saw me was a decade ago, um, and they're just finding out if I'm still alive and if I would ever like to have my teeth cleaned again. I mean, they, they just, they know I don't enjoy going to the dentist. I have a couple of preferences when I do go. So if I go, something's wrong. That's, that's the only reason I'm going. Something's wrong, particularly at my age. Uh, and I just have two preferences. One, one would be this. Uh, I'm not there to develop a friendship. I'm not. I, I'm not. I'm happy to meet with you if you're my dentist another time if that's appropriate, but I'm not, that's not what, I'm not there to chat uh, and I'm not there to catch up. And my preference is that, that you not talk to me while your hands are in my mouth and you have unbelievably sharp instruments in your hands, okay? I just want you to concentrate. I'm here because of all the diplomas I see on the wall. That's why I'm here. And I would just like you to concentrate and I would rather you not talk. And you know what? If you prefer to talk, don't ask me any questions because I can't respond, all right? Your, your hands are in my mouth and you have sharp instruments and therefore I can't answer. You would be quiet. That would sorry. And let's get this over as soon as possible. So that, that's one preference. My second preference is an even stronger one. I want the legal limit of anesthesia, okay? I do, I want the legal limit. Uh, oh, Mr. Mahaney, we're just cleaning your teeth. I want the legal limit of anesthesia, okay? I want, I want you to numb my whole head. That's what I want, I do. I want you to numb my whole head. Why? Here's why, I don't like pain. I don't prefer pain. Now, since my conversion, when I go to the dentist, I don't say to the dentist, I don't need anesthesia anymore because I'm a Christian. And ever since I became a Christian, I don't feel pain anymore. That's not what I say to the dentist. Because I still feel pain. Trials are painful for the Christian. Genuine Christians are familiar with grieving in trials. There is no spiritual anesthesia. Doesn't exist. And Peter is a wise and compassionate pastor because he acknowledges the reality of their grief in the midst of their trials. And brothers and sisters, so must we. So must we whenever we encounter someone who is enduring trials, whenever we encounter someone who is suffering for their faith. It is wise and compassionate to grieve with someone who is enduring a trial and not just exhort them to rejoice. Let us recognize that even when we rejoice in suffering, listen, even when we rejoice in suffering, and it is appropriate, most appropriate for us to rejoice in suffering as God's word wisely commands, but even when we rejoice in suffering, this does not eliminate the pain and the grief that accompanies suffering. We rejoice within the painful experience of suffering in this life, not divorced from the painful experience of suffering. And listen, our rejoicing doesn't eliminate the pain of suffering. And let me just add this. There is some suffering in this life and the grief associated with that suffering 
There are, there are certain tears that only the Lord Jesus himself will wipe away on the last day. I don't want anyone here to think that it's immature to grieve. I don't want anyone here to think, you know what, if, if I only learned how to rejoice, then I would stop grieving. Your Bible doesn't teach you that. Your Bible does not teach you that. Peter is not teaching that. Actually, if you look carefully at the face of a mature Christian, here's what you're going to see. You're going to see lines of sorrow on their face. You're going to see lines of sorrow on their face. For trials are painful. And the mature Christian, he or she, they are familiar with grief. They are familiar with lines of sorrow. But notice that after compassionately acknowledging the reality of their grief, then Peter wisely strengthens their hearts by informing them there is a divinely designed good purpose for their trial and God is at work even in their anguish. So, for those among the original readers wondering why... For those among the original readers who didn't anticipate upon conversion suffering. For those original readers who are thinking, why is this happening? Why are we suffering for our faith? Peter explains why in order to fortify their soul in suffering. Point two, the good purpose of trials verse Seven. So after identifying with their grief, Peter then imparts hope by drawing their attention to the purpose of God for their trials. He informs them there is a divine design. There is a divine design to their distress. He informs them there is an unseen hand at work. And he wants them to perceive the unseen hand of God at work in their suffering and not just live simply and solely aware of their grief. So notice, notice the phrase at the outset of verse 7, so that, so that, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that. So their trials are necessary and purposeful, and then Peter articulates why these painful trials are necessary and purposeful in verse 7, so that, The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this, my friends, oh my, my, this, my friends, is heart-changing, perspective-altering, life-transforming stuff before us. Trials are painful. But they are also purposeful. Purposeful. There is no such thing as pointless, painful suffering for the Christian. No such thing. So we are not exempt from the pain of trials, and in this context, persecution for our faith in particular. But even though trials are personally painful, in and through trials, something else is going on. Something else is happening. Our faith is being revealed and refined. And if we respond appropriately, we won't waste our trials, but instead, by God's grace, grow through our trials, and most importantly, glorify Him in our trials. And Peter is drawing their attention to the great value of this gift of faith, great value of it to God and in God's sight. Peter beckons the original readers, look beyond, look beyond your painful circumstances, look beyond those who are opposing you because of the gospel. He is saying to the original readers, listen, you you must perceive, you must perceive the hand of God, not simply the hostility of man. And you must perceive the purpose of God for your faith 
and not solely be preoccupied with your pain. A Christian must perceive there's another hand at work. There's another hand at work in a trial. There's an unseen hand at work on the heart. And that unseen hand is at work revealing faith and refining faith. Peter likens their trial to the purification of gold. He is informing them and each of us as we listen into this conversation, he's informing them of a different economy, a different economy, the economy of God, the economy of God where our faith is more valuable than gold. God values this faith more than man values gold, and God values this faith more than our present comfort. Proved faith is more valuable than gold. (laughs) It's a commodity that man values big time. But the genuineness of faith, like gold, it's revealed and refined through fire. Suffering is a crucible. It's a crucible for revealing and refining faith. Suffering reveals the genuineness of one's faith. Listen, I want to encourage all of us this morning. God intends this testing to be a most encouraging experience. Because as one responds appropriately to a trial in general or persecution in particular, you you will emerge from the trial Listen, you emerge from the trial realizing your faith is the real deal and not superficial or fake. And this experience is, listen, more precious, more precious than gold, more precious than gold that perishes because the faith that doesn't endure when persecuted isn't genuine faith. So persevering when persecuted for one's faith, it, listen, it's a means of revealing the genuineness of one's faith. Still have vivid memories in my mind of my experience immediately following conversion. Prior to conversion, sadly, and to my shame, I was immersed in all manner of the drug culture, sadly, and to my shame, passionately pursuing all forms of sin and pleasure, and I had a wide network of friends. I was cool. I was well-liked. And then, after a friend shared the gospel with me, and my heart and life were transformed, all of those friends, not some of those friends, all of those friends abandoned me, all of them. The friend that shared the gospel with me, he lived in the state of Florida. He returned home. I suddenly found myself alone and abandoned and ridiculed. And in that moment, which certainly I endured some small degree of pain, but in that moment, I can still vividly remember, man, this is real. My faith is, by God's grace, genuine because I just lost everything that I live for and it doesn't matter to me anymore. My heart has been changed. I have an affection now for the Lord Jesus Christ. I love this book that I never read prior to being conversion, not one time. And even though I was alone and abandoned by all my cool friends and no longer parting with them, now ridiculed by them, I realized in my aloneness, man, this is real. (laughs) This is genuine. So that trial had its wonderful revealing work in my life. Suffering reveals the genuineness of one's faith and suffering also refines Faith. Our our faith is purified, similar to the purification of gold, through fire. So just as fire removes the impurities from gold, trials reveal and remove impurities from our heart. The fire doesn't destroy the gold, just the impurities. So the fire of trials or persecution doesn't destroy our faith, it reveals the genuineness of our faith, and it removes the impurities from our hearts and lives, impurities of sin, impurities of idolatry. So the fire of trial 
and persecution doesn't destroy the faith of the Christian, but instead it reveals the genuineness of it, removes impurities from our lives, and refines our faith. So what's Peter doing? He's a wise pastor. He's a compassionate pastor. He's assuring them, there's no need to fear the fire. You are in the fire. Perhaps you didn't anticipate the fire. But there's no need for you to fear it. No need for you to fear the fire you're presently experiencing because it's divinely designed. It's divinely designed to reveal the genuineness of your faith. It's divinely designed to refine your faith. So Peter is giving them a biblical perspective of what's going on in their lives, what's going down in their lives. So the persecution they're experiencing and the grief as a result doesn't obscure their awareness of an unseen hand at work for good in their trials. And then Peter draws their attention to the ultimate purpose of suffering. He, he in effect, presses fast forward and arrives, arrives on the day of Christ's appearing. He anticipates, oh my, he anticipates the outcome of these trials on the last day. Look at verse 7b. So that the genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Oh my. He draws their attention to the last day. He wants that future day to make a difference in their lives and in our lives today. So on that day, the last day, the only day that matters. On that day, those who have faithfully endured, what will they bring? They will bring praise and honor and glory to Jesus Christ. Presently, the original readers, they are being maligned and mistreated. But when the Lord returns, when the Lord returns, everything changes. When the Lord returns, everything will be reversed and everything changes. So endure, brothers and sisters, endure the difficult present in light of the glorious future. Brothers and sisters, this stuff will change your life, okay? It will change your life and change your life in particular in relation to trials. When you perceive the good purpose of suffering, then you will embrace suffering rather than live fearing suffering or trying to do all you can to avoid suffering. Suffering has a good purpose. And one more thing, suffering has an expiration date. Oh, yes. And we must not overlook that very sweet and comforting phrase in verse 6. Do you see it? Did you see it? Though now, did you see it? Though now for a little while. A little while. Oh, how good is that? Our suffering is for a little while. That's according to the heavenly calendar. According to the heavenly calendar, okay? This is all in relation to eternity, future. This is how you probably feel. This is how at times I feel. Is our suffering ever going to end? Don't you feel at times like the psalmist? How long? long. It seems to be endless suffering. Peter says, hey, let me draw your attention to that future day. Let me draw your attention to eternity future, because in eternity future, you will look back on your life and the suffering you endured, and this is what you will say. Well, that was just, that was just a little while that's just a little while. And so what Peter's saying is the future can make its way into your soul today so that you can actually leave here with that divine perspective. See, I wish I could tell you that if you arrived here suffering, I wish I could tell you that it's all going to be circumstantially different by the time you make your way to your car. Can't tell you that. I hope that's true for most of you. It's not. I can tell you this. You can walk with your car, to your car, with a skip in your step if you are informed by this divine perspective. Your, your trial 
probably hasn't changed. Oh, but your heart can change. And your perspective of that trial. And compared to eternity future, and all that God has planned for us in eternity future, remember all that inheritance stuff? Compared to eternity future, all of our trials are brief. How good is that? Isn't it good to know there's an end date? There is an end date. And that end date involves God's purpose. And that purpose is a glorious future. Finally, the sweet assurance in trials. Verses 8 and 9. Notice, just notice this is a very wise and caring pastor. Um, He's wise and caring in many ways. But now he ceases to exhort them and he instead commends them. And he draws their attention to the genuineness of their faith in verses 8 and 9. He turns their attention from the anticipated return of Christ to their present love for Christ. Faith in Christ. Rejoicing in Christ. He is saying to them, you haven't wasted your trials and sorrows. Your faith is genuine. Your faith has been refined. Your suffering has actually made you better, not worse. In his excellent book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, author Tim Keller insightfully writes, suffering will only make us better rather than worse if during it we teach ourselves to love God better than before. Well, that's what the original readers did. And that that is obvious in verse 8 as Peter draws attention to this love. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And in his fine commentary on 1 Peter, Tom Schreiner observes, "Their, their, their sufferings have not made them morose and miserable. They are filled with love for Jesus Christ. He is precious and lovely to them. So the original readers, they have not wasted their suffering and sorrow. And this is what matters the most in their suffering and sorrow. What what matters, listen, what matters is not what they can see. What can they see? They see their enemies. They see the hostility of the culture. They see opposition. They see and feel the effect of trials. But that's ultimately not what matters. What matters is who they love, the one they cannot see. And this is an evidence of the genuineness of their faith. And this will sustain them in the midst of painful suffering. And how meaningful, oh my my, how meaningful this must have been for them to hear this from Peter. Peter, the one whom Jesus asked, do you love me? Peter, says to them, you love him. How good is that? Peter affirming the genuineness of their love for Jesus. I mean, how meaningful it must have been for the original readers to to read this and to realize that their lack of personal, physical contact with the incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, listen, did not leave them at a spiritual disadvantage in knowing him or loving him. Their love for Christ was as genuine as Peter's. Why? It was the fruit and effect of the same spirit. That's why. Listen, Peter had seen the Lord and had vivid memories of his experience with the incarnate Son of God. No no doubt, if you could have coffee with Peter, he vividly remembered Jesus calming the life-threatening storm with a word. Jesus casting out the legion of demons from the garrison demoniac. Jesus healing blind Bartimaeus. Jesus being transfigured. Jesus in Gethsemane. Jesus looking at Peter after his denials. Jesus sitting across from Peter at breakfast after the resurrection. But Peter is aware it was not his physical observation of Jesus or even his personal interaction with Jesus that explains his perception of Jesus or his love for Jesus. 
So Peter also, no doubt, vividly remembered when Jesus asked the disciples at one point, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon. Listen, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Simon, you didn't get that by looking at me. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. But my Father, who is in heaven, revealed that to you. Peter's perception of the unique identity of Jesus wasn't human observation. It was divine revelation. Now listen, these Gentiles, the original recipients of this letter, who were not with Jesus, who did not see the incarnate Son of God, they were given the same gift of perception as to his identity by the Holy Spirit through the proclamation of the gospel by eyewitnesses like Peter and the other apostles. Good news, oh, good news for you and I this morning. Good news, you don't have to see him with your physical eyes in order to know him and love him. How meaningful this must have been to the original readers. How meaningful should it be to us? It should be no less meaningful to us. By the work of the Holy Spirit and through the proclamation of the gospel, it is possible to see what you cannot see and love whom you cannot see. Our friend John Piper just helpfully explains this. He writes, how do you love him and believe in him if you can't see him? I think the answer to that question is that even though we don't see him face to face with our physical eyes, we do see him in another way that, listen, is even more important. In the preaching of the gospel, Christ can be seen in a way that is more important than seeing him physically. Hundreds of people in Jesus' lifetime saw him physically and never really saw him. There is a seeing that is infinitely more important than seeing with the eyes. Uh, this next sentence is just prepared to be, have your life blown up. If you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, with openness to Christ, you can see the true glory of Christ far more clearly than most of the people who knew him on earth could see him. And I love this next sentence. The Gospels are better than being there. Drop the mic. The Gospels are better than being there. Though you do not see him now, yet in another sense, you do see him. Far better than thousands who saw him face to face. And because you see him with the eyes of the heart, you love him and you trust him and you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. This is true Christianity. I had the particular joy when I first preached this message in the church in Louisville of, of having someone approach me after the meeting and inform me that they had brought a guest to the service and the guest they brought to the service that day was blind. And they just wanted to relate to me how meaningful this point was to them. For as they sat there, they were freshly reminded they aren't living under any limitations because of their blindness when it comes to seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Oh, good news for you and I this morning. It was not necessary to have been with Jesus Christ in order to know him and love him. And though they were being opposed for their faith, the genuineness of their faith, it was evident. How was it evident if you were with these folks, if you were hanging with them, if they were gathering with us this morning? How would you know their faith is genuine? They love him yes. whom they cannot see. And the genuineness of their relationship with Christ was evident by their faith in him, that brought them into vital union with him. And the genuineness of their faith was evident for in the midst of a difficult, painful trial, they rejoiced. They, listen, they rejoiced with joy, that is, <laughs> these words, that it, a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. I always feel so weak here. I lack formal education. My vocabulary is, is woefully inadequate and terribly limited. What, what am I supposed to do with, how am I supposed to describe this for you? Joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Like, 
How do I describe that? Well, you don't. Good news for me, you don't. <laughs> because inexpressible joy defies description. So, that's helpful for me. That's liberating for me. Because the joy he's talking about is a joy unlike any earthly joy. It's inexpressible. It's really indescribable. The most articulate man in the state could take his place behind this podium and he or she could not describe this. It's inexpressible. What, what is it hinting? It's hinting of a heavenly joy. A heavenly joy. So it's impossible to describe. So that's what a Christian experience is. A Christian experience is what? What is that joy at work in your heart, even in the midst of the grief and pain associated with suffering? What is that joy? Oh, it's a foretaste. It's a foretaste. Okay? I was at a, a burger restaurant the other day, and, and they had, had some kind of sauce that I didn't recognize, and so I, I just... Can, can I taste the sauce? I didn't want to commit to the burger because all I like on my burger is just, I really actually don't even like burgers. What I like is mustard and raw onions. I, I don't know why. There's something about the combination of all those things. So if you ask me to have a burger, I would say, no, I don't like burgers. But then if you say, I will bury it in mustard, original mustard, not fancy mustard, not French mustard, no, original, whatever that yellow mustard is, and then I'll put all kinds of raw onions on top of it. I'll say, I'm, I'm in. So this one was coming with a, with a sauce that I didn't recognize. So I, I asked if I could taste it. And in tasting it, just did a little taste. Brought me a little thing. Taste. Oh. Okay. <laughs> that has potential. I can imagine this burger being served by that taste. Well, that's what that's what the Lord does with us. Here's a little taste. And you know what? Even the little taste, it's indescribable. It's inexpressible. Even in the midst of suffering in this life. Here's what the Christian discovers in the fire. These originally, they found themselves in fire, fire they didn't anticipate. And here's what they discovered. They realized in the fire, we love him. We believe in him. We rejoice in him. You know what they realized? We're not in this just for the earthly benefits he provides. So in the midst of the trials that are painful, genuine Christian discovers that you love him the earthly benefits he provides. That's the joy you experience along the pathway of suffering and persecution. And then Peter's final sentence just draws their attention back again to that all-important final day. Verse 9, attaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So that's just, that's just a phrase that really describes the entirety of God's saving activity in the life of a Christian. And by the way, notice the phrase, your souls, your souls. It makes this thought, this reality very personal for the readers. So in effect, Peter's making eye contact with the original readers. Most importantly, God is making eye contact with each Christian today and saying, your souls. Finally, I can't end without at least drawing your attention to this. The passage is a reminder of why we love him. It's not just an affirmation that we love him. It's a reminder of why we love him because this passage reminds us of the difference. Listen, it reminds us of the difference his suffering has made for our suffering. Yeah. Our suffering as Christians, listen, it's brief. It's part of God's good purpose for our lives. It reveals the genuineness of our faith. It refines our faith. And because... Brothers and sisters, and only because of his substitutionary sacrifice on the cross for our sins, the only fire a Christian will experience in this life is the refining fire of our gracious heavenly Father. Those who pass through the refiner's fire in this life 
are those who have been saved from hell's fire in the life to come only because of the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ on the cross in our place. Listen, Jesus took upon himself hell's fire for sinners like you and me. He did it in our place so that the only fire we might experience is the refiner's fire of God our Father for our good purpose and ultimately for his glory. Because listen, we have been sprinkled with his blood. Sprinkled with his blood at the end of verse 2. So if you have been sprinkled with his blood, and let me just say to my non-Christian friends, if you have not been sprinkled with his blood, why would you wait another moment? Flee right now from your sin and its consequences in this life, but even more, its consequences in the life to come and be sprinkled with his blood because all who are sprinkled with his blood are spared from hell's fire. And by the way, that's the only explanation for the original readers or any of us having confidence at the revelation of Jesus Christ and before the judgment seat of Christ. That is the only explanation for that confidence. The Christian approaches that day, that revelation of him, that unveiling of him with confidence. Why? Well, because we've been sprinkled with his blood. So on that day, he will bring an end to all suffering for the Christian. And until that day, you should be able to recognize the face of an elect exile when you meet one. Look carefully at his or her face. This is what you'll see. There'll be lines of sorrow. There'll be lines of sorrow from trials, but underneath is a fountain of mirth enough to set a kingdom laughing were it to gush forth because he or she perceives the wise unseen hand of God and the good purpose of God even in painful trials. Let's pray. Father, how kind of you to inspire your word and preserve your word with us in your peripheral vision, with each one present this morning in mind. How kind of you to address Christians and non-Christians from your word. I pray that both would respond appropriately. In Jesus' name, amen.